Hello, and welcome to Baker McKenzie's Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal podcast series, dedicated to helping your organization navigate the full continuum of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Whether you're managing the immediate crisis, stabilizing operations, or evolving your business, this podcast will cover key insights to help strengthen your organization's capacity to respond, recover, and thrive. My name is Jennifer Northam, and I've spent over 20 years as a producer and journalist covering international business issues for leading news organizations. COVID-19 has wreaked havoc on businesses around the world. It's estimated global government bailouts could reach 10 trillion US dollars before the pandemic eases. In this episode, we'll be looking across regions to assess the variety of ways governments are supporting the business community during this time. I'm pleased to share this podcast with two experts who will walk us through the issues. First up is Kuhn Van Herens. Kuhn is a partner at Baker McKenzie with extensive knowledge and experience in mergers and acquisitions, private equity, securities, and corporate finance. He also leads Baker McKenzie's global task force on government interventions. Also with us is James Wilson. James is a partner in the firm's tax practice and concentrates on international tax planning issues. He's also a member of Baker McKenzie's Global Consumer Goods and Retail Industry Group Steering Committee. We are recording this podcast from our homes in light of COVID-19 social distancing rules. This pandemic isn't like anything we've ever seen. Businesses around the world have been forced to shut their doors to contain the outbreak. Billions of people have been in some sort of lockdown and working from home. We're slowly easing out of that lockdown and getting back to work, but the economic implications are still really unknown. Many predictions have been made, and recently the managing director of the IMF anticipated the worst economic fallout since the Great Depression. Kuhn, what do you think? Is it just too early to tell? Well, I think, Jen, indeed, it's pretty early still to tell, and it's also very uncharted territory to some extent. The people try to compare it to crises of the past, and that's challenging. I mean, the World War II, for instance, uh, after five years of fighting, all infrastructure was destroyed, which is not the case here. Plus also a dramatic loss of human lives uh, required a lot of healing. Here we have also a dramatic loss of uh, human lives, but it still has a very different scale. If you compare it to the global financial crisis of 2008, there the virus was, uh, if you you could say so, in the system itself, which is very different from now. Most of the companies pre-crisis were in pretty good shape, and we would expect that for many sectors, if demand and supply can be restored very quickly, it might just be a blip for them. The challenge will be, I believe, the fallout from uh, sectors which are hit very hard, like aviation, like entertainment, and the fallout into other industries. A key piece will also be the effectiveness of the government measures and the massiveness of it, but also the efficiency of it. And we know if government intervenes, that creates tax or budget deficits with potentially higher taxes going forward. So finding the right balance there will probably be a key to understanding what will happen with the economy over the next two to three years. And James, what do you think about that? I mean, there's obviously widespread debate on just how quickly these economies will recover. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's hard to say because there are two dimensions to this, I think. There's, you've got the public health response on one, the one hand and understanding how effective that's been. And there were three articles that sort of informed my view of that. One being that there's been a study suggesting that 
the lockdown in the, in the US has saved potentially 8 million infections, which is obviously a huge success viewed through that lens. Another where they polled a large number of epidemiologists in the US as to how long they thought it would take before various things, before those epidemiologists would be happy to do certain things. And and 64% of them said it would be more than a year before they attended a sporting event or a play or any sort of large scale public gathering, which I think gives you a sense of how the experts see this playing out. And, and the third was an article suggesting that average infections in the US have started to rise again. And, and that sort of tells you that we might start to see recurrence of the virus, which may cause any economic recovery to be more stop start than we hoped. But the second dimension is the economic policy response. And, and so far, those responses look to have been effective in pre- preventing major structural damage, as Kuhn says. But we're not out of the woods yet. And there seems to be a coalescing view amongst economic forecasters that the hoped for V-shaped recovery may be more of a U-shape at best. So I wanted to look at what different governments around the world are doing to support businesses. Let's take a look at a couple of things, what tax relief governments are providing, as well as the short-term liquidity support, and then that next wave of solvency support. Kuhn, let's start with you and, and talk about Asia. What support have some of the governments in this region given to prop up businesses and the economy? Well, I think it, it, it's important to, to stay up front, to say up front that many of the government interventions were not coordinated at all and were sort of structured by the national governments looking at their own needs and their perceived needs. And if you look at Asia, what you see is that they obviously were hit by the crisis much earlier than the rest of the world. And it looks that they have been able to contain the virus also in many places much better than in Western Europe and and the US so far. Hence, the economic impact seems to have been a bit less. Plus, on top of that, they start with economies which have generally higher growth figures than the Western world. So from that perspective, we've seen also that the government response has been a bit more moderate than what is potentially being done in the US and in Europe, where uh, a lot of focus is on uh, social security and some tax relief and on uh, liquidity debt measures, uh, moratoria, uh, additional credit lines and so on. But we haven't seen much of the equity solvency support mechanisms. And it's also worthwhile pointing out that, for instance, in China, one of the largest economies there, many of the companies are state-owned. So government support mechanisms on the balance sheet side would probably not be needed uh, up front. And if you look at Japan with their big, large conglomerates, they probably have built in an automatic hedge between the different sectors. Certain sectors are much harder hit than others. So I would expect that maybe also there is less a need for uh, equity support mechanisms uh, in that part of the world. And turning to the West, let's look at what's happening in North America and Europe. I think it's fair to say we've, we've seen countries provide a varied degree of support. Germany seems to be leading the way. What are your thoughts on that? And what are other Western countries doing to help their economies? The same is true as we saw in Asia. It's really a mix between the three. Huh? It's tax and social security relief. The debt relief is widespread across the different countries. And then as far as the equity support mechanisms are concerned, we've seen very big files in the automotive industry, in the airline industry. But my sense is that uh, the next wave of equity support mechanisms is just being mounted. 
many governments we speak to understand that uh, they will need to see sort of until after the summer how large the damage really is because it's important that they do it in an efficient way, yet at the same time taking into, into consideration the budget constraints. And what we also see is a drive to make sure that not just the government uh, helps with the support, but also that they set up structures to allow private investors and even the public to help come to the rescue of many companies who have been suffering from this crisis. So, James, this is quite a blow to the British economy specifically, who are also dealing with negotiating a post-Brexit relationship from the EU. What have you seen happening in the UK? Well, the UK government has done what many others have done and made loan support available to businesses. They've implemented a job retention scheme where effectively the government is paying the salaries of employees who aren't able to work. And on the tax side, also followed the lead of many other countries in providing for deferral of certain tax payments. I think what's interesting about the UK is how this all effectively upends the austerity measures that have been in place since the 2008 financial crisis. In that 10-year period, the government in the UK has made 30 to 40 billion pounds of austerity cuts. The Office for Budget Responsibility in the UK is estimating that the cost of measures to tackle the current crisis could be almost 300 billion pounds this year. That's almost 10 times the cuts. And so it's plain to me that there's going to be a price to pay. One of the issues that seems to be cropping up is that disconnect between what each country is doing. And you you alluded to that earlier. Are businesses having a hard time understanding kind of what that cross-border impact is of all these measures that are being put in place? Yes, definitely. I mean, obviously, a lot of the measures were put in place over a four to eight week period from the start. There was really no time for coordination and there was also no authority out there to help coordinating. You see a little bit more coordination probably in Europe through the state aid framework, which puts certain boundaries around it. However, it's very clear that all governments were basically looking at their national interests first, which is logical in a situation like that. But hence, you have a patchwork of rules which are all very different. And navigating that maze is, is not easy. Take, for instance, the example of equity support mechanisms. As we see what is coming out bit by bit, if you get equity from the government, you will have to have a certain exit plan, which is different from one country to the other. You might have uh, restrictions on the dividend payouts. You might have restrictions on executive compensation. So for companies operating cross-border and tapping into different government budgets in different countries, it's a, it's a quite a difficult thing to, to navigate this whole structure. The same is true as far as banking consortia are concerned, for instance, consisting of banks in many different European countries. So how do you uh, work through all of the potential support schemes in the different governments? And, and that's, uh, that requires, I think, in many situations, a detailed understanding really of the rules, but also trying to understand the interplay between the rules. James, what about the threat of new outbreaks and in turn further lockdowns? Are governments prepared to offer even further bailouts and for how long? Well, the message I'm seeing is that securing the economic recovery has to be the number one priority. And I think that means, yes, absolutely, we'll see further measures being taken by governments to support their economies if we start to see new outbreaks. The US is already planning a new wave of stimulus. We've seen Christine Lagarde, the the chair of the European Central Bank, come out and say that 
the ECB will do whatever is necessary to support the Eurozone economy. And so, yes, absolutely, I think we'll see governments do whatever they need to do to preserve the economy, their economies, in the event we start to see new outbreaks. And what does this mean for foreign investment? Kuhn, how have countries started to take, or have countries started to take, a more stringent approach to foreign investments to protect more vulnerable businesses? Well, very very early on in the crisis, we saw that uh, a lot of governments either put new rules on the books to uh, prevent foreign takeovers of companies which were suffering by the crisis or revitalized systems they had in place for some time. So far, it looks like it's much more the rules which have been put on the books rather than the real application of it. But it's probably a very good protective measure to make sure that your crown jewels are not just bought out uh, because of very low prices on the stock exchange and so on. But governments have done other things as well. They put in certain markets short selling bans in place, which have also helped stabilizing the stock markets a bit, although the specialists are not clear whether they have been that efficient, uh, those short selling bans. And James, when it comes to cross-border M&A and, and future transactions, what are some things companies need to think about in you know now and in the long term and in regard to risk? Well, I, th- I think it's interesting to note first that this is a, a sort of surprisingly robust M&A market even today. We're seeing acquisitions take place and quite big acquisitions. But you know, at the same time, we're seeing companies look to preserve their liquidity, increase access to borrowing, hoarding cash and really riding out the crisis, and, and obviously that's the, the main risk, that, that it has to be priority number one for companies before they start thinking about strategic M&A. Inevitably, though, this is going to start to turn around. I think we'll see a substantial uptick in M&A in the medium term. You're going to have some companies gaining strength with, a, with cash to spend and others with substantially lower market caps relative to the value of their core assets. And so that's going to make them attractive acquisition targets. And then add to that, you've got a lot of private equity funds with a significant amount of dry powder that they're going to be looking to spend. And so I do think we're going to see an uptick in the not too distant future and potentially quite a substantial one. And while you have out your crystal ball, what will the future tax situation look like? Is it inevitable that companies and individuals will see a hefty increase in taxes to pay for these bailouts? I think perhaps instructive to go back to my UK example from earlier In the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, the UK's answer was to cut spending. And they saw a 10-year programme of austerity, which is now starting to become clear that that's had a significant impact on social welfare in the UK, and there's just very little appetite for more. And if you don't cut spending, that leaves tax rises to take the load. I think one thing that's interesting is that in recent years, we've seen a global trend in the corporate tax arena towards greater levels of source-based taxation. So higher levels of tax in the jurisdictions that companies sell to in, instead of the jurisdictions in which they're based. And polit- politically, of course, that's attractive because governments are imposing in that circumstance higher taxes on foreign companies or perceived foreign companies. And so it'll be interesting, I think, to see if that trend picks up steam as countries look to refill their coffers post-crisis. On the individual side, you can easily see a real uptick in pressure on governments to address wealth inequality. Certainly in the US, we're seeing a lot of energy behind social change. And if that results in substantial political change in November, I think we could easily see progressive changes to the tax system here in the US. 
So lots, lots coming these next few months. Finally, things are moving very quickly. Um, as we've been talking about, where should companies go to get the most up-to-date information on government support as well as information on foreign investment? Well, we have uh, prepared on behalf of Baker McKenzie a slide deck uh, which covers uh, 250 pages and, and 45 jurisdictions or so. It's available on a link which gets updated every week. And we also have a hotline where we're more than happy to, to field questions and talk and, and organize talks with our specialists in the different areas. Because as you can imagine, it's a very complex maze with very different uh, details in the different rules across the globe. So uh, it's not easy for anyone to grasp all the details of everything. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank, thank you. you. For those listening, we'd love to hear from you feel free to send any comments or questions to 3rpodcast at bakermckenzie.com. That's the number three, the letter R, podcast at bakermckenzie.com. Or contact us through the Baker McKenzie social media accounts. Use the hashtag resilience, recovery, renewal. More information on this topic is also available on our website at bakermckenzie.com.